Welcome back to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me, as always, celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. How's it going? Good. Good, good, good. We are in a new series, man. I know. Thank you for introducing me to this. Well, I'm glad. So if you don't know, if you blindly just downloaded an episode... This is the season premiere, the series premiere of Halt and Catch Fire, the AMC original series that is now living behind the paywall, AMC+. This is uh, actually in our podcast history, which is not very old at all. The first series that I've actually seen, but Adam hasn't. And so as I tend to do when I introduce new content to you know my best friend Aaron at, over at Feelin' Film, uh, which is rare because he typically sees a whole bunch more than I do. I get a little anxious and I intentionally held off on saying, what'd you think? Because I really kind of want to know in real time, are we going to be able to get through this first season with uh, a smile on our face or is this going to be Badge's show with Adam going, sure, I guess that's okay, you know? <laughs> so let's just go ahead and get into it with regard to this first episode called IO, which is, you know, input output. What did you think of this pilot episode, which is not called pilot? I really liked it. I remember when the show came out on AMC. I remember when they were like promoting it and I was like, oh, that sounds like something I would enjoy. Uh, I had a, a one-year-old baby at the time. So a lot of TV slipped through the cracks at that point in time in my life. So yeah, this was one of those shows that slipped through the cracks. I never watched it I remember seeing some ads for it. So I knew it was about the computer industry in, I guess, the 1980s. That's about the extent of what I knew, though. That's it. I thought maybe it would be something I would enjoy and appreciate. If you don't know, I worked for Apple Computer for almost a decade. I did not program. I worked in marketing. So I'm closer to one of the characters that we'll discuss than the other in this show. So I understand technology and I can talk with people about it, but I'm not in any way a programmer or an engineer, but I did go to a school where I befriended many of those people. I I went to Rochester Institute of Technology in New York and almost everybody I knew there was either an engineer, a software developer major, or just, you know, majoring in IT or something like that. It was a good time to be getting into that field. There's a lot of work. <laughs> so I knew this is this was going to be something I would appreciate, but I have to say that the characters are really great. There's just a lot of stuff being set up here that if the show continues to be as solid as this episode, I think I'm going to really, really love it and want to keep going. <laughs> well, I hope so, man. I mean, this is one of those shows that I watched in real time. It actually was like a summer series, which is why the hmm. the episode limit is like, I think at 10 or nine or something like that. It's, it's, it's no more than 10. I don't think, I think there are 40 total and there are four seasons. So, you know, averaging out to about 10 per. Right. And I remember when, because it was on cable, it was not a, an official streaming platform, even though it lives on AMC plus where you can purchase it. I think you did. I think you purchased the first season. Yeah, the the risk was always like on network television. Is it finding an audience? Will AMC continue to pick it up? The difference with cable shows, I think, when it comes to their original content, is that they're not completely beholden to an audience. So if the Nielsen ratings are low, 
they may find that it's critically acclaimed, and so they'll continue to do it. And that's kind of what happened, that each season in the minds of the critics kept getting progressively better. And I'm going to put that in air quotes because hopefully by the end of this season, you'll want to watch more. I really enjoyed it. This is one of the reasons I picked it is because I think not only does it take place in the eighties, but the fact that I think you and I share an affinity for that time period and coming off of stranger things, it's a different flavor of the eighties because it focuses specifically in the computer age. And one thing I really appreciated about this show was the fact that you have these characters, you have these ideas living amongst real things that are happening. IBM exists, Apple exists, Tandy, Texas Instruments. These are all mentioned in the pilot episode. So it's not like you have this fake universe of ideas that were inspired by the things going on in the 80s. What I love that they're doing here is they are integrating ideas that lived in that time period, but are creating characters that exist sort of outside that bubble. And they're using those things potentially as challenges or things to overcome. And and we get hints of that in this pilot episode. I also enjoyed the fact that much like Ted Lasso's pilot episode, a lot is going on here. We get introduced to several characters that are going to be very significant going forward, and we get the problem, we get the issue, and it's set up in a way that leaves us going, at least for me, leaves us with a hook at the end that says what's going to happen. This is a world that, like you, I'm not real familiar with. I'm not familiar with the technical side of what was going on in the 80s. I mean, we knew about Mac versus Windows. I mean, that's a great story that's been told several times over. This is the early days. This is the early PC. This is when IBM was really the king of town. Now we see what would it be like if a small company decided to try to compete with something as big as IBM. And so I like that that's not just what's going on, but I like that that's a premise that lives inside this first episode. So it intrigues me. And getting introduced to the characters the way we do, there's definitely some dichotomy that exists between some of these characters, particularly Joe and Gordon, who are the two main kind of folks. But even some of the supplementary characters that support them, I think, really add a large amount of just really good flavor to, to the cast, as you mentioned. Just it's a really great character list. I'm talking it up pretty big, but I'm really hoping that you're not going to just kind of throw me a bone here and be like, I'm just going to get through this first season. No, no. it It's totally, as I said, it, it was something I was intrigued by and always wanted to watch. And this is like the perfect opportunity to go back and visit it for me and revisit for you. And it's very similar in a way to the way they did Mad Men in that it was a fake ad firm, but they talk about all the other real ad firms that existed and also a lot of the brands were real as well that they were promoting. So it's like you're inserting a fake company, but into real history. And I think that's sort of the same approach that they took with this show. It's based on the first episode and nothing more. (laughs) Right. It's interesting because I always kind of knew the title term, Halt and Catch Fire or HCF, was just kind of like a, a machine language instruction for causing a computer to, you know, stop functioning. But the little title card or, you know, description that they placed at the beginning here, it seemed to be a little more complex than I was aware of. I don't know if it's if that's fully accurate or if they were just having fun with the language. I looked it up and it's not exactly that. 
So I think that the spirit of HCF is brought up in that title card and that opening set of like overlay text. I don't know if that's what the official, like what that's called when you have like a, like a quote or something before a movie or a TV show or something like that. Is there a specific name for that kind of thing? I mean, thing? there is, there's a lot of films that do this, you know, they'll put a little, usually a quote from somebody famous though, you know, that might pertain to the, to the film. I, I always remember the, the movie, the abyss uh, had yes. a little quote by Nietzsche in the beginning that said, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. And I, I always thought that was a perfect way to kind of start that film and kick it off. I, I think there's probably a term for it. I'm not sure. In this case, it's just a definition or we're told it is <laughs> for the title of the show. In any case, I think it, it definitely sets up a nice premise for the show. This idea of aggressive movements to try to get something to happen. We sort of get that compounded with this armadillo that's crossing over the text in front. I thought that was kind of a cool <laughs> effect. And then we hear this really fast car. This is where we get introduced to Joe McMillan, played by the amazing Lee Pace, who I just think is fantastic. I just saw him not too long ago. I watched this uh, new Apple TV Plus series called The Foundation, based on the Isaac Asimov novel, and he's fantastic in it. I mean, the, the show I have sort of mixed feelings about, but he did an incredible job in essentially the lead role for that show. Yeah. He's great in this pilot episode as Joe McMillan, and I really like the way that he's introduced. The car hits the armadillo, and then he stops, and he looks. His reaction is just like, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not freaking out. He's like, all right, it is what it is. And then we cut to the classroom where his delivery here is such a salesman delivery. Like You can tell right off the bat that he knows how to sell something. Yeah. And so this gives us a great kind of idea of the kind of guy that we are going to get to know over the course of this episode. And he doesn't let up. I don't think there's a moment when he's not selling something, which is interesting because it makes me wonder, like, what drives him to do that? What in his life, what is it? You can't always be a salesman unless you're just absolutely passionate about something. And that's something that really comes up in this episode is that He's yeah. not just trying to make money. He is really trying to sell an idea that is going to maybe change the world. Right. And so he ends up at this college and starts kind of lecturing and asks all these students, okay, how many of you guys are here to study computers, which they all are, raise your hand. And as he's asking them more questions about specific areas of computers, they all slowly start lowering their hands. And it comes down to two people, this dude in the front who... When he asks him a question, he gives him what's like a canned answer. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Now tell me one thing that will be true about computers 10 years from now. Well, fully intelligent machines will simulate the actions of neurons more closely um, replicated. Okay, thanks. But the other person is this blonde in the back, completely looking different than everybody else. She's got like a t-shirt, blonde hair. She's just looking all punk. And he's intrigued. She's got her hand up and... They're kind of playing a little uh, little uh, verbal chess here, or verbal tennis match, which I think is attractive to him. Computers will be connected together across one network with a standard protocol. Like phone lines? Obviously, phone lines. What's your name? Cameron. Cameron Howe. And 
that's the introduction of Cameron Howe. So we've got our first two kind of main characters set up here at this at this first instance, and I'm I'm already excited at this point. Yeah, it's interesting because well, two things. One, Lee Pace, the way he plays Joe, he definitely has that kind of marketeer. Yes, he knows enough about computers and about computer language to be able to speak to and talk with programmers, but he's clearly not one himself. He's, you know, there's that sort of two sides to the same coin. You need somebody that understands the technical, but you also need someone who can speak to regular people, like the business people and everyday people who don't know anything about computers. He's that bridge, perhaps, that he can straddle both worlds and be able to communicate in both. And so that's clearly his skill set or his one of his skills is is that ability to speak to both and to see talent and to see when somebody knows their stuff or knows more than the average person might know. And then the other character you mentioned, the young woman, is played by Mackenzie Davis, who was in the recent most recent Terminator movie, Terminator Dark Fate, where she played like a Terminator human hybrid or something. And so I was at first I was like, oh, did they name her Cameron because of James Cameron? And but like, well, no, that Terminator (laughs) came out way after this, unless it was some kind of, you know, subtle reference because James Cameron made the Terminator movies, which took place in the 80s. They were about computers that became sentient. And so maybe it was a little (laughs) a little uh, nod to James Cameron. I don't know. Are you saying she's a Terminator? Is that what you're saying? No, no, just that the creators may have, uh, <laughs> okay. may have. I mean, of all the names, they gave her the name Cameron. So anyway, there's a lot of names out there. <laughs> there are a lot of names out there. That's for sure. At this point, I'm asking the question, what is Joe doing? He seems to yeah. be a lecturer, but a salesman. And then he latches on to Cameron, who he follows to a bar that apparently she works at. And I didn't catch that, I guess, the first time I saw this, that when I was watching it this time, somebody had asked her, hey, we need drinks at table four or something. Somebody was asking her. So apparently she works at this bar, but she also plays a lot of centipede with this one quarter that's dangling from a string, which I thought was a brilliant way to only play on one quarter. <laughs> right. Does it really work? I want to. I kind of want to try it. I want to do it. I want to <laughs> actually try this. Unfortunately, the closest arcade that has a coin slot is already free play. So I can't really, I can't really try that, but I definitely would want to try that. Or at least maybe uh, one of our listeners could kind of enlighten us if if that ever happened. (laughs) She's playing Centipede, which I thought that's cool. That's cool. It's not Dig Dug, but it's still, it's still cool. And it's a very challenging game. I've played my fair share of Centipede and have lost my fair share of Centipede games. Yeah. You would definitely need a quarter that you could reuse over and over again to get good at that game because it yes it, it, you would spend a lot of quarters otherwise yeah i guess by technical definition you would have played on one quarter it's the same quarter that you keep pumping right. in so i could beat pac-man on one quarter <laughs> right exactly <laughs> maybe I don't and know. it looks like in one scene you see her she has to kind of drop it in like quickly at just the right moment like tug it out like tug the string to pull it out so it has to like connect and register that it went through, and but then she can't let it go too far down, I guess, because maybe it would get stuck then or trapped in the change compartment. Anyways, yeah. A cool trick. Yeah, yeah it is a cool trick. And Joe is impressed with her, I think, not just because of her game playing skills or her ability to kind of hack a, an arcade machine, but he comes across as really kind of a recruiter, and she really is blowing him off. This is a credit to the costume design. You have these two characters that look completely different, and she sees him as a suit. And this is what you would call Big Blue, the IBM. It would be the suits. And he reveals to her that he doesn't work for IBM anymore. 
And so he starts asking her these really interesting questions, like, what do you want to do? And she gives him this canned answer. I think she actually mentions uh, Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, which is the Star Wars program. And I only bring that up because we talked about it during one of the Stranger Things episodes when they they bring this up. (laughs) I think it was the first season, yeah. Yeah. And again, it's correct because it was announced on March 23rd, 1983, and this is a little later that summer, I believe, because as we'll get into, they go see Return of the Jedi. So they got their dates right. They yeah. did. I was questioning, what year is this? Yeah. And because we're getting small hints as the episode goes on, but I think the, the clincher was the Return of the Jedi reference. Right. And she says two things. She says, no, This is an industry built on people ripping off each other's boring ass ideas. Yeah. Which is not an untrue statement at this point. You've got, and she, she uses examples of all these folks that are sort of seeing an idea, ripping it off. But I love the fact that she calls them boring. Like, it's not just that you're ripping stuff off. It's that you're ripping off stuff that really doesn't have a lot of value. And so he presses her, and he's like, what do you want? What are you, what are you, what are you thinking? And she goes, hey, computers could be more. They should be. And I think that really sort of sparks something in him. And I think he's trying to gauge if she has what it takes to do more with the computer. And so we're starting to get a little bit more about him, where... I think he's trying to assemble a team, honestly. I think he's trying to, he's got this vision, but he doesn't have the team in place. So it's kind of like the digital computer Avengers or something where he's like right. putting a team he's, together. Yeah, he's Samuel L. Jackson, right? He, he is. He, without the, uh, He doesn't without have the any patch, powers, right? but he's got the vision <laughs> and he knows who he needs to round out his team. So Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't, and he doesn't have vision specifically. He has the vision, but not the vision, vision specifically. There you go. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I did like one thing she said. I don't know the exact quote, but she says, Everything I'm studying here is so totally 10 years ago that no one who matters pays attention to anything I do. I'm paying attention. Yeah, but do you matter? I just thought that was really a smart statement because even that's true even today, if not more so today. I would say that anyone that's a true visionary has to be thinking forward as opposed to backwards, although you do need a foundation in history and understanding where things have been in order to learn where they're going. but. Still, I think she's clearly mastered everything (laughs) that has come before and is ready for a greater challenge. Absolutely. And I I think she's very much confident in that mastery, (laughs) as we see. Right. (laughs) And Joe's attracted to that intellectually as well as physically. And so they decide to consummate their potential partnership by having sex in this back room, or they don't actually. Because he says, this doesn't mean you get the job. And right. I'm just going to say this. This is not a spoiler necessarily. But during the first season, there are like two or three moments where I was like, mm, I don't really get this. This doesn't really quite make sense tonally with the show. This was one of those moments. And not because what happened didn't have ramifications. Because clearly later on in the episode, it did. But there are some moments during the season where actions are taken by some of the characters that sort of, I won't call them soften up later on, but they just become a little bit more, they get tweaked a little bit to make more sense. So this was one of those for me in the pilot episode. I remember like, oh, so they're having like dirty sex in the back and (laughs) then they stop because he insults her and then the credits roll. I mean, it just, it felt weird to me. Like, I don't know that Outside of the conversation later on, which is really hilarious, I don't know that it added much value to 
what we were seeing here personally. Yeah, it's it is a bizarre scene, and the only thing I can think of is maybe it just shows that these are two sort of like-minded individuals with similar values, perhaps that even if they kind of are pushing each other away initially or or just kind of butting heads, they actually are more alike than they realize. Maybe that's what they're trying to get across, but through this this scene. Eh, yeah, I don't know. But then we get to the official credits. So I guess that was the cold open for us. Right. And I love the title card. I absolutely love the title card. It's the music, the graphics, the way that things are sort of bleeding into each other, the silhouettes or digital silhouettes of the char- the characters showing off the, the actors themselves. It's just really, really cool. So yeah, I, I'm, I always liked those title cards and, uh, Throughout the season, I think I'm just going to keep watching them because they're good. And it just reminded me, in a way, it kind of encapsulates how we sort of romanticize and are very interested in these early days of computers and personal computing. There's just something, we've been doing this for decades now. There's something about these early days. I think it's because so few people had any clue about any of this at the time. It, It was such a small, I mean, now everyone knows about computers, but back then, it was such a small percentage of the population that really understood what was happening and where the technology was potentially going. For everyone else, it was just like science fiction. <laughs> it was like, oh, right. war games, right. you know, computers are going to kill us all. You know, it's like we didn't, no one would, people go to those movies and not really understand what any of that meant or sort of understand the, the technology that those films was kind of taking advantage of to tell their story. Yeah. So. I think we just there's something about this period in history that we all just kind of look back on in a way because we weren't part of it. Yeah, and it makes me think about what Cameron said when he was asking about in that lecture. He said, "Name something, you know, tell me something about computers that are going to be true 10 years from now." And she basically predicts the internet. And I thought if you're talking about that in early 1980s, that sounds so preposterous. I think she's from the future, Adam. I think she is a Terminator because, you know, she predicted the internet and the way that she describes it sounds so nonchalant, like absolutely it's going to happen. But I think that you're right in that when we hear this dialogue, this is what I think is great about the series is that we almost think they weren't thinking about this stuff back in the 80s. They were just thinking about the microchip or they were thinking about modems. No, people were thinking about these kinds of ideas So giving us characters that sort of allow us to hear them talk about that stuff, we know the future. And so hearing these characters talk about stuff that hasn't happened yet, I'm intrigued more by going, okay, well, if you see this, Cam, how are you going to get from where you are right now with giant mainframes to the internet? Right. How do you make that a reality? How do you make that vision a reality? Right, because to them, that's what it is. It's a vision. It's a vision to Joe. It's a vision to Cam. So I think the premise of the show is asking that question, how do we get there? Right. What does it take? Yeah, and so this first episode sort of starts exploring that in a really, really forceful way, as we'll come to find out. It takes more than just these two, so we have to get introduced to our third character, which is Gordon Clark. Yet another scene that doesn't really get explained in the episode. Like, why is he in jail? The first time we see him, he's being bailed out of jail, I guess, like at two or three in the morning by his wife, Donna, who has their two girls in the car. I think he was, my guess, public intoxication. 
maybe okay. would be the most like if he's drunk he probably was you know picked up thrown in the drunk tank or whatever you call it you know because he was stumbling around over the limit you know maybe he was even mm-hmm. trying to drive and he got pulled over or something like that you know it's yeah. uh, very likely it had something to do with his drinking <laughs> yeah but we're we're not told yeah no we're not but we get a hint at maybe what he's been sort of dealing with uh, just a right. small hint there I love Carrie Bish here. I think it's Bish, Bishy, Bish. I think it's Bish. Yeah, I always thought it was. Bi- yeah, I always thought it was Bishy, uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, she she was also in another show I watched not too long ago called Super Pumped with Joseph Gordon Webb, okay. another tech show, if you will, about the early days of Uber, how it came to be oh. a good, a really neat. really well done show. It's a Showtime show. So oh, neat. Okay, could be a future show to to consider for an original nope. series. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Just put it in the in the potential backlog for us to to yes, cover. Exactly. But she plays Gordon's wife Donna and I think her opening kind of presence here is fantastic with this one line. He says to her, "You didn't have to bring the kids." I think I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You have to bring small children with you. Can't leave them at home. <laughs> You can't leave them at home, yeah. Gordon. <laughs> and don't blame this on being drunk. You're a smart right. person, clearly. But yeah. on the way home, he sort of starts talking about this idea, this symphonic. I'm getting this feeling that there's some regrets here. Maybe he's frustrated about something. The episode itself doesn't really go into a lot of like past detail. I mean, you get little like little hints here and there, but we don't. Yeah. We're not spoon fed anything mm-hmm. about their past. And I'm hoping. Yeah. I'm hoping that sort of fleshes itself out where we get more of those gaps filled in from his past. I mean, what what yeah. I see from that scene is that something happened in the past that he regrets either happening or not happening. And so his drunkenness is sort of bringing that out, much to the frustration of Donna, who's like, please don't do this. The kids are trying to sleep. Please don't <laughs> right. wake the kids up by being this loud and obnoxious. And I agree. I'm with you, Donna. Yeah. Let's, let's just get home and go to bed because this is not a good night to let the kids experience this nonsense or anything of that. Yeah. And then um, the next scene is in the Cardiff electric office. I love this name Cardiff electric. It's very regional. It's a, it's a, right. It's not, it's, it's like Dunder Mifflin to me when I see Cardiff electric, right. like, Oh, it's Dunder Mifflin of, of the, uh, of the computer companies. <laughs> just, I, I love no, that at this that. time though, just putting the word electric in your company name made it sound <laughs> Like modern, like the yeah. pinnacle of high tech was electric, you know? Like yes, just, right. You would never put the word electric in a company anymore. It would just be ridiculous. Right. So, But they may have been around a while. Cardiff Electric could have been around for 50 years when electricity was first, you know, being invented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I put that I in the air, air quotes. quotes when you say yeah. invented. Because <laughs> it's not really invented. It's 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 out there, but it was I guess discovered or harnessed. Maybe is the better harnessed. Word. Is a, yeah. I think that's a better word. It's harnessed. Yeah, and and maybe maybe Cardiff Electric is trying to kind of play off of or live off the backside of uh, General Electric. Putting the word electric behind your last name sounds great. So rack off electric. It's coming to a power <laughs> source near you. I mean that just sounds great. I think we right. could get some real money for that. Yeah, people do need their electricity, so I guess you're right. <laughs> if it's electric, it's us. It's a, that's a good yeah, it's a good slogan. <laughs> that's why you were an ad man at Apple. <laughs> uh yeah, so this is their this is the company clearly that that uh we're gonna be learning more about and spending most of our time, I'm assuming, <laughs> going forward. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I can say that without spoiling anything, that okay. Cardiff Electric will have a presence in this season. <laughs> <laughs> because in this scene, Joe is actually getting interviewed by John Bosworth, which again, at this point in the episode, I'm like, what are you? You don't work for right. IBM. Are you a sojourner? Are you just like a nomad who's in a great looking suit and a great looking uh, you know car? And you're just like trying to find jobs? What's happening here? I love... John Bosworth's character, and particularly I love his accent. So this is something I wanted to just kind of call attention to. Recently, my podcast partner at Feel and Film, Aaron and I, went through the John Grisham filmography, the John Grisham Mm -hmm. verse. And one of the things we pointed out was because a lot of his books take place in the South, you've got to have folks with nice Southern accents. I'm from the South, and I'm sure people from the North who listen to me trying to sound Northern or New Yorkan or Bostonian or whatever will say the same thing. If you don't get it, you don't got it. If you cannot do the Southern accent, it sounds really fake. And right. there were some movies in that grouping of films that we watched where I was like, Mm-mm, no, that's not quite up to snuff. This here, Bosworth's Texas accent is really good. I love it. And I think it's such a great vocal flavor that contrasts with Joe from New York and right. even some of these other characters that don't have that thick of a of a country accent. Like when he talks, I'm reminded I'm in Texas. Donna works at Texas Instruments and it makes a lot of sense that Cardiff, the the owner of Cardiff Electric, is very much a Texan. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's satirical. It feels very genuine. Like these are people that I would know in Texas, in Dallas, Fort Worth, in the South. They probably cast it, you know, I bet they found uh, local actors, you know, actual Texas actors that live locally and and had a, you know, a casting call because that's how you get it. You know, you're not going to get the most famous actors that way that are going to be recognizable all over the country, but you're going to get authentic actors who really will right. deliver. And yeah. like you said, if you're from that part of the country, you're going to feel like it's authentic because you yeah. you can pick it up. And this is a great scene because there's a lot happening here. We get more about Joe. He is, again, still a salesman. The way that he pitches himself, talks about numbers, and Bosworth, just that's what he's concerned about. He says, I just need someone to blow the balls off the numbers. <laughs> and right. Which, you know, getting, getting sales up. John thinks he's kind of got the upper hand. He's like, you didn't even bring a resume. And I love that Joe pulls out his W-2 instead yeah. of a resume. Like, he alludes to the resume. Joe opens his briefcase, and he pulls out the W-2, and he's like, what is this? And he's like, Box one is my last reported income at IBM. Woo-hoo. It's also what 200% of quota looks like. So Joe gets the job. Boz gives him the job, tells him to go break his numbers. I don't know if that's yeah. an 80s phrase or a business phrase, but you know, he goes off. And then we're in the parking lot where Gordon is chowing down in a nice donut inside his uh, <laughs> 1970s whatever car that was. It's a killer car with the, I think some issues with the brakes or something. Um, it's making noises, but he sees that Joe has taken his parking spot, which is a 16 and Joe doesn't care. This is great kind of nonverbal back and forth with the cameras. I thought was fantastic. And then we're back inside. Gordon is sitting at his desk and Joe calls out a 16. You're my SC for this sales call. Fantastic. I'll take my car. It's closer. So clearly, as you mentioned earlier, Joe as an employee in this regard has the selling point. He needs the technical side to be able to kind of walk through that. 
his selling is just on point here. It's it's just coming through in a just an amazing way. And there's this really interesting observation that I made. When you look at how Joe is dressed in this meeting versus how Gordon is, I mentioned the costume design. This is another great choice here for for the costumes where you have Joe who's always in a suit, always looking great. And then Gordon's just sort of a frumpy. Yeah. He's just an engineer. He's just, you know, a guy that sits at his desk and he, he has a, I don't even know if he has a tie, but he's got just a button down shirt with a jacket and it's kind of wrinkled. And it's such a great contrast with these two individuals because as we find out, it sort of speaks to how they're approaching life at this point. Joe is very much like, go get it, where Gordon's like, I'm playing it safe. Something happened in the past and I really can't afford to take any chances. But I thought the visual here was really, really cool. Yeah, I agree. And he definitely comes off, uh, Joe, that is, as the kind of Don Draper of computer sales at this point. I mean, again, I don't know where his character is going, but at this point, he seems like he's just really good at selling whatever he's trying to sell to anybody. If he can get them to sit down and listen to him, he can close. And this whole scene kind of reminded me a little bit of like a Mad Men scene where all these kind of, you know, business guys are just all they care about is they're getting a meal with free drinks and it's like they don't care they they don't even know what's going on they're just they they're enjoying the fact that they're being taken out you know for a good meal (laughs) it's just an interesting scene yeah it's uh and a lot of development very quickly for kind of who these two guys are and, and also how they're different and one question i have for you right before this scene there was like a really short scene where we see joe in his apartment i guess above high above the city and he's like highlighting something in his corporate handbook or something like a corporate hierarchy and then there's this kind of overhead shot where you see him laying back on a chair his shirt is kind of open and it looks like he has a lot of red scars or scratches all over his torso i don't know if we're supposed to notice that if that i mean it wasn't explained in this episode. That's why I'm bringing it up now, because I don't know if I missed something, but I did catch that. No, you okay. didn't. Uh, it does have significance in okay. the series, All right. and it Got will it. get explained. But yeah, that's a great observation and no something spoilers. that I actually yeah. forgot about now that you, <laughs> now that you mention it. And- it was so quick. like It was just one of those blink and you can miss it shots, but it was clearly there and intentionally placed. <laughs> I mean... You don't put something in there, as we know, in filmmaking, you don't add something if it doesn't have significance. So I'm hoping we'll learn more about that down the road. Lee Pace was just laying on yeah. a bed of nails and doing <laughs> exactly. takes. And like, <laughs> That's just his real chest, you know. Like, That's right. Yeah. 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 He's, he's got no, no apologies <laughs> about that chest. At this point, Gordon is listening to this pitch, and he is actually enamored. I love his facial expression here. Um, hearing things like, you can be more, you want to be more. Joe is actually not talking to him directly. He's talking to these potential clients, but he then glances over at Gordon. It's almost as if he's indirectly kind of pitching that to him as well. He's almost accepting the pitch better than the businessmen are. Right. There's a moment that I thought was fantastic where Joe knows how to sell. He knows how to live with tension and with awkward silence because he sits there for probably like five or six seconds. And you contrast that with Gordon who basically starts saying there's also a free install for, and he's cut off. Yeah. <laughs> and Joe says, Gordon, please. And then the guy says, we'll think about it. And it's just, 
silence. And the next thing you see is they're back in the parking lot at Cardiff Electric, and Joe is absolutely pissed. Like, he is frustrated. And he says to Gordon, who tries to kind of temper the uh, the moment, he says, you know, you, you're never going to get anything out of those guys. They never buy anything. And, you know, it's good that we didn't get a no. We got a maybe. That's That's pretty good. And he goes... You did a solid job explaining the software, but I need you to do me one favor. Okay. Next time I move to close, this is what you do. Okay, what? You shut up! And I, I feel it, though. I mean, I, I kind of agree with Joe here. Like, Joe was doing his thing, and he kind of broke his concentration. You know, he broke the flow of his pitch, and yeah. it didn't work. Or at least he didn't get it immediate. Yes, maybe he will get right. a yes later. But yeah, we didn't get one in this yeah. episode for sure. There's right, no exactly. yes coming back from those guys. <laughs> in this moment, there's that power dynamic that is shown verbally, but also the camera angle is really interesting because I think it's a two shot and it's over Joe's shoulder and you can see how much taller he is. He is giant. I'm not even kidding. He's over six foot five in real life. Wow. Yeah. I, I really in that show foundation that I was watching, there was one scene where he was just towering over one of the other actors. And I was like, is he really that tall? And so I looked it up and yeah, he's listed as six foot five barefoot. So that's a tall man. <laughs> and the other actor could also be short, which even increases the, <laughs> you know, the difference here. The mm-hmm. But I, I think it's almost intentional that they cast Lee Pace because of how right. tall he is. And it's in this moment particularly that that comes uh, with a lot of great like purpose here because he's clearly in control at this right. point. Even though he didn't close the sale, he's the one that's actually pulling the puppet strings. Gordon doesn't realize it until later <laughs> because yeah. he's just put yeah. this little nugget in his head. And that little nugget sort of plays out in the next scene where we're back at Gordon's house he is just kind of spacing out while his wife is really kind of engaged with the kids. He's drinking Dr. Pepper. She looks at him and looks at the drink and goes, it's Dr. Pepper. So apparently drinking is an issue with him. Well, after his arrest, I'm sure that was, sure. you know, and I love that he's listening to, uh, to uh, Creedence Clearwater revival here in this scene. <laughs> yeah, right. Great song. It's, yeah. Lodi. Yeah. So Donna takes the speaking spell that's broken, doesn't really work. And she starts kind of unscrewing it. And she asks Gordon to, you know, maybe you could help out with this. And he's just not even engaged. And then she says, Gordon, do you want to maybe get me the salt? Maybe you could just reach into the cabinet about seven inches from your head, take out the salt and put it in my hand so I can finish cooking this. Do you think you could at least get me the salt? And he just kind of slowly reaches his hand back and then hands it to her. And you can just tell that, like, it's almost like he's given up something. Like he is just not even wanting to try. And she's trying to figure out how to deal with this. She's got two kids. She works. There's so much great kind of almost like apathetic tension in this scene that we can kind of pick up on that they're having trouble. They're having some marital issues. I think they're just trying to figure stuff out from what we don't know happened in the past. What we do know as we find out later is has something to do with the symphonic computer. But right. now we are sitting in this living room that is, by the way, the production design's great here. I love the house. Um, my parents' first house looked a lot like this with some of the wood oh, really? paneling. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. The, 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 it was very, the, the cabinets there, and that stuff. That was very in at that time, you know, the, the 
that style. The avocado countertops and stuff like that. <laughs> right. the, the the beige countertops. It was so ugly. But that was definitely <laughs> like mine in, in the 1980s. <laughs> you also get, at least I got in this scene, it's reinforced later, that she seems to be somewhat technical as well. Like it seems like she, because she starts to take apart the speaking spell herself and try to figure out what, what's wrong with it. And so, and she mentions some other things too about her work. So it kind of made me think, oh, maybe they're both, you know, working in the same industry, but not necessarily at the same company. This is what I was thinking at the time, at this point in the episode. And, yeah. uh, and we, we learn more later, of course. He makes, a, <laughs> he makes this great line that's so, just like a dig at her. <laughs> she goes, you want to take a look and see what's wrong with that? They make that where you are, not where I do. Exactly. That's <laughs> the little, that's where I said they don't spoon feed it to you, but you definitely get the little the little drops here, the dribbles and drops here and there of, of hints that they that she's working in the same general industry. I don't know yeah, what she I, does specifically at this point, but I just kind of want to slap Gordon funny. for her because that's I just know. <laughs> yeah. He definitely comes off as at this point he's kind of a jerk, I, and I think we're supposed to feel that he's so kind of disheartened by his professional career, perhaps where the the trajectory that it it has taken that he just he's kind of given up you know he doesn't really have any motivation any anymore and um you know that's gonna clearly change within this episode well and it it starts to change that next scene back at cardiff electric gordon sitting in his cubicle among the just the army of cubicles (laughs) that right make life so much worse as a as a human being and gordon is thrown down this copy of Byte magazine that, again, we talked about the stuff that's realistic. This was a real magazine back in the 70s and 80s. It was different than other computer magazines in that it did kind of editorial coverage, and it was really kind of dedicated to developments in small business computers and software, very technical. So this is very much something that Gordon would have probably, at the very least, been a reader, but we find out that he actually wrote an article Joe is inspired. Like he is just jacked up about this thing that Gordon wrote that apparently he forgot about. Right. It's so strange. Yeah. That he would be, he wouldn't even remember a quote from his own article that he clearly spent a a lot of time, I'm sure, writing and doing drafts of and and editing. And (laughs) it just, yeah. Unless he was drunk when he wrote it or something. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if you'd write a successful article called the no, future. No, I don't think so. Of, or maybe he's just drunk now, hung over now, and so that's why he can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Too many Dr. Peppers at dinner. That's yeah, what exactly. it is. <laughs> but Joe says, I want to meet the guy who wrote that article. I have a project for him. One of my favorite lines of the episode is when Joe says, Computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that gets us to the thing. And that says so much about what yeah. Joe is trying to do. He's not just trying to create a really cool computer. He's trying to change the world. He's absolutely right. trying to grab hold of something that will just make a huge difference. Now, if it's for personal gain or financial gain or for altruism, we don't really know at this point. But Joe clearly has some kind of motivation to do something different. Right. So at this point, he has put himself in a position meeting Cam. We find out in a little bit, you know, what her purpose is going to be. But this, you know, Nick Fury of the computer world, he's ingratiated <laughs> himself with 
yeah. with Boz and Cardiff Electric. So he's sort of got a headquarters that he can do this. And now he's got a systems engineer that he is, you know, inspiring. But yeah, I mean, he is he is working the room. He's actually starting to kind of move some chess pieces around. And it's at this point where Gordon's thinking about it. We can see him in that back room back at his house in the next scene. The phone rings. It's Joe. Donna says, hey, we're going to a movie. Uh, he can't talk right now. And then she's kind of curious, like, what's he calling about? And he doesn't really want to talk about it. And I think at this point, I can sense Gordon's confliction. Right. Where it's like he could jump off the diving board and dive headfirst into the cold water and just experience like this amazing, like, what's this going to feel like? Or he could back off the diving board and just go sit poolside knowing predictably what that's going to be like. That's a terrible analogy, by the way. So I apologize for it. <laughs> but my point being that taking a chance for him versus playing it safe, we're starting to kind of feel more of that tension with him. Or at least I was at this point. I'm starting to get inspired by Joe. Like I kind of want to work for Joe at this point because he's, he's saying some things that I could really get behind. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife is trying so hard. I kind of feel bad for her because she's really trying to engage him and get him to open up. And he's just like completely lost in his thoughts and in this sort of internal conflict that he's trying to deal with. And he just won't give her anything. Yeah, it's it's sad. Yeah, it really is. But it's not enough to keep them from going to the movies where they see Return of the Jedi in right. Dolby. Yeah. Is it in Dolby that they... Yeah, Dolby Stereo. That, that was a big deal at the time. I mean, everything yeah. was mono for a long time. And then yeah. Star Wars introduced stereo. And again, in comparison to today's 7.1 surround systems, I mean, stereo, two channels, not a big deal. But it was a big deal at the time, and it made it sound a lot better. It was something you advertised. If your theater could project a film and give you stereo sound, it was a, a selling point. It reminds me of um, my wife and I were watching Melrose Place on Paramount Plus uh, because we can. You know, we finished yeah. now two and zero, and we started to, decided to stay in LA with the with the <laughs> nighttime drama. And every episode at the bottom, right before it starts, says "In Stereo Where Available," which I remember, I remember that. that. From. Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, because TVs there were very few. You know, at the time they were CRT tubes, cathode ray tube. You know, tubes that were you know, this big. 20, 27 inches, probably the biggest you're going to get for the most part back then when you're for those shows. And um, to get one that had that actually had two speakers built in was very rare. Most televisions were just a mono speaker. So I remember when we, when we got our first TV that had stereo speakers and I was like, whoa, I can hear a sound go across the, you know, like from the left to the right side of the TV. It's so amazing. It's yeah. like, again, today we don't realize how good we have it with everything we have because these things were not standard. They were novelties at the time. Yeah, I remember being at a friend's house and him showing us his surround sound, which was new to us. Yeah. And he played a clip from, I believe it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Sean Connery is using his umbrella to umbrella, chase the birds. yeah. And the the plane that's going by left to right, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like right behind us. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> and now that's just what you hear um, if you yeah, have a surround sound system. We're so jaded now. It's like eh, I know. What? <laughs> it was interesting though when uh, when they were walking out of that theater, he says to his, I think to one of his daughters, you don't hear the beginning of the sentence, but he goes, go, go home and watch the other two Star Wars. 
And I was like, you know, maybe they hadn't seen them. I don't know. Yeah. And then I was thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. 1983. Yes, VHS was around. The first Star Wars came out on VHS in 1982, but Empire Strikes Back didn't come out on VHS until 1984. So Ooh. I think I caught a mistake. Adam catches a mistake. <laughs> My useless knowledge of VHS history comes into play. Your 80s Spidey sense was tingling. You're like, yeah. that's not accurate. Like, that's not correct. <laughs> maybe they had a bootleg from China or something. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a bootleg. And or perhaps, and that's for like the kind of consumer VHS tapes. There were also video rental stores that had more expensive tapes that you could purchase again for like a hundred dollars that were uh, only available to the rental places so perhaps they somehow purchased one of those those tapes that's i'll just make an excuse for them hey both of those parents are smart enough they could do that i mean they're technical folks apparently yeah or they have two vcrs so they get the tape from the rental store and they make a dub see yeah that's high speed dubbing they can high High speed speed dubbing yeah exactly on sp on sp (laughs) For higher quality. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not SLP. Not that was, SLP. You get six hours, but it looked horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Use SP. We promise this won't be an all VHS podcast. It could become that, and then at that it point, could just be. turn us off. Yeah. So I'll, I'll steer us back to the scene at hand, which is, <laughs> is at the movies. Joe runs into them. What a creeper. And he's rocking a nice little leather jacket. So clearly, Joe is a man of fashion, not just with the suits, but even on casual Friday, I guess, where they're going to a movie. He's in a nice leather jacket. And he essentially wants Gordon to reverse engineer an IBM PC. He's very direct, which I thought was really cool. And he gives some legit reasons why they can't. One, it's illegal. Uh, Two, they get fired. And he says at the end of that, sorry, you missed it. In other words, that, you know, all this stuff that you're thinking about has already been done. You know, we're really kind of past the point of innovation. There's like a half dozen other companies out there that are highly successful. They're all doing, they're all manufacturing their own PCs at this point. And there's nothing new to do here, basically, is what he's, you know, that we missed the boat, essentially. Right. And we get a little bit more insight into Gordon's hesitation. He asks Joe, do you have a family? And then there's a pause and he says, I didn't think so. So taking that risk is obviously would be detrimental to his family. And then that gets sort of further pressed when Donna's asking him about Joe, she said, that's not creepy at all, is it? <laughs> you know, really sarcastically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he basically tells her that he's inspired and he wants to do something great with computers. One of the things that I really picked up this time was this tension dialogue between him and Donna. When he's asked about the symphonic, there's this great contrast in how she describes it and how he describes it. It's a silly computer mommy and daddy built that didn't work. The symphonic was the best thing your dad ever did. And I think those two lines really kind of create a great, not only revelation about something happening in the past, but about how they both viewed it. Gordon saw failure as an opportunity to succeed. Donna saw that failure as an opportunity to move on and to get back into a safe space. And honestly, both of them are right. Both of them have their reasons. Right. When she mentions that she had to spread the dental work for one of their kids across three credit card bills, oh my gosh. Like, yeah. does TI not have any great insurance? I mean, <laughs> or does, does Cardiff Electric not? But you can definitely feel 
the weight of where they are as a family. I mean, I've had that situation, not that we've been like financially like in despair, but we've had moments where we've had like bill after bill after bill and we're like, how are we going to pay for this? And trying to figure all that out. And it makes you want to sort of play it safe. Like, okay, we don't need to go out this week. We don't need to, you know, let's take a month off and not go out and do special things. Or it's, or like, we'll go out to dinner, but no drinks, no sodas. You ever have yes, that right. growing <laughs> up? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember doing that. I was like, do yeah. I get water tonight or can I get a Coke? Is that okay? I don't know. <laughs> can we afford a Coke? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. But um, watching that scene play out, we are really sort of revealing how different they are, I guess you could yeah. say. She's moved on. Her priority now is the family, the, the kids, the two daughters, and just making you know a living and staying out of trouble, essentially. And he's clearly still sort of stuck on this, the promise of what the symphonic could have been and that he still might have something left in him to offer the world like unfulfilled promise and that's why he's so upset that's why he's drinking he's like an artist who can't paint or can't make music or whatever he can't do what he feels deep down inside him that he was kind of put on this earth to do that's his gift if you will or his his art calling i guess his calling Yeah. yeah that's a great point adam just the idea that when you feel prevented when you feel handcuffed that you can't do what you're meant to do whatever that is, whatever you believe it is, I can see why that's the case. And I think it speaks to, not necessarily in this episode, but our conversation is just sort of reminding me that we have different seasons of life that we live in, that by making the choice to get married, we are choosing to give up the benefits of being single. When we choose to have children, we are giving up the benefits of being a couple without kids. And I don't say that negatively, that it, life is better when you're single or life is better without kids. We just make those choices. And because of those choices we make, our investment, our time, our energy has to be able to go into those things that we have chosen to make a part of our lives. So when I get married, my wife is a significant part of my life. I can't ignore her. I mean, I guess I could, but then that wouldn't be great for a marriage. Right. And I think that the same thing's happening here where Donna has moved on and now they have this new life. They have this other life with the family and him with her. And for him, I think that he sees that at this point as a detriment, as a limitation. And it is. I mean, there's no doubt that it is a limitation, but it's not a wrong limitation. It's a chosen limitation because right. yeah. you're now responsible for more than just yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And he clearly took... I'm guessing this job at this electric company <laughs> to um, <laughs> to just make money, you know, like that. It was a it was it's a paycheck. It's not necessarily what he wants to be doing. Right. Uh, but that also that also leads me to a question, because clearly he works for this company. Joe Lee Pace, his character, knew about this article that he wrote in Byte from years earlier, probably found out where the author of the article worked. And so my question is, was this all a ploy getting this job at this company? Was it all so he could meet Gordon because he was the author of the article and then basically rope him into working with him? You know what I'm saying? Like, was this all part of a master plan by Joe to kind of make this happen? Yeah, I say this very much. I'm not trying to hide anything. I don't know. That's a really interesting 
perspective because I thought as I'm watching the scene play out that he just picked up Byte Magazine recently, like in the last few days, the last couple of days, mm. and was like, oh, it's Gordon. He kind of zeroed in on him right away. If you think about it, like yeah. as soon as he gets to work, he acknowledges Gordon and he picks his parking space of all parking. You know what I'm saying? It's just some, yeah. a lot of things seem to be adding up, like why it, either they were destined to be working together or Lee Pace knows who he is. And this was all part of his plan was to get close to him at his place of employment and then enact, you know, his sort of master plan to get them to uh, start manufacturing their own computer. I mean, knowing what takes place in the episode, that makes a lot more sense that he would really put this whole thing together. Right. Of all the companies, right? It happens to be the one where this guy wrote this amazing article about the future of computing and that inspired Joe. Anyway, just something uh, that I thought about as I was watching it, having not seen any other (laughs) episodes. So yeah. We'll see what, no, we'll it's see it's it. it's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm gonna kind of look at it through that lens because I think it, as you say that, it makes a lot more sense going through this particular episode. As we move forward, we get this interesting montage of Joe's apartment and Gordon's house, sort of both mulling over this proposal. You know, Gordon has said no, but clearly he's still thinking about it. Joe pulls out a bat that says "Swing for the fences, son." So I'm guessing it's from his dad, and then he starts breaking his apartment. <laughs> Another, again, another unconventional scene that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Like, why would you destroy your apartment (laughs) if you're quite literally swinging for the fences? Although, there is something I thought about as I was watching this scene. Joe is essentially breaking damaging things, and it's intercut with Gordon, like, repairing or creating something. Fixing the speak and spell and, like, building something. So, it's almost furthering who they are as people, that Joe is a destroyer, perhaps, and Gordon is a creator. But together, they can do great things, perhaps. Uh, Anyway, that's my little takeaway. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's been said already in this episode, but Joe refers to Gordon as a builder. He says, you're a builder. I think it happens later on when they get found out Mm -hmm. about IBM. But yeah, he affirms that, that Gordon is a builder. The fact that you see Joe as a destroyer is very interesting. And I think in some ways, he is breaking people down. That's what a salesman does. It essentially cuts through all the nonsense to get to the heart of things. So, you know, I think in that way, it's a it's a good metaphor. It's also a way to destroy your apartment, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> he can afford it, right? Because he brings on 200% of sales. And I want to know what that W-2, uh, I want to know like how much money he was bringing home in 1983. I'm just curious what that... I, yeah. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> <laughs> Enough to get Bosworth to to hire him, so exactly. without a resume. <laughs> I mean, with inflation, I mean, yeah, it could be quite a lot. So it could be, it could be. We can only speculate. And so then we're back in the parking lot, and A sixteen gets his spot back, yay! And then shows <laughs> Joe the IBM PC that cost apparently way too much money. So he's agreed to reverse engineer it or help Joe reverse engineer it. And then we get to that whole kind of montage in. Gordon's garage over the long weekend. He is faked being sick, so the kids and the wife are out of town. Yeah, I think they have three days, essentially, before his family comes back. Yeah. Deconstruct and reverse engineer this this IBM computer, which 
yeah. is those small feet, as they explain. <laughs> well, and I'm glad they explained. This is something yeah. that I found really helpful in this episode is that Gordon's explaining the concept of open architecture, that all the pieces in this machine you can buy off the shelf with the exception of the chip or more specifically what's on the chip. Like that's what IBM owns. That's good mansplaining for me. I appreciate yeah. that. And it's true. In almost every computer company up until this point, it was the same. They were all getting the same screens, the same motherboard. Like everything was coming from the same suppliers for the most part. It was just how it was being packaged. And a lot of it had to do with the software or the operating system. That was really right. the main difference between what was going on under the hood. And then this meticulous process to get the sequence of code is just insane. Joe asks, how many of these addresses do we need to transcribe? 65,536. I guess they did all that. But that I mean, how? Man. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I did some quick math. If it takes 30 seconds to transcribe one, that would take 546 hours. So more than 72 hours of a three-day weekend if they didn't <laughs> sleep or eat or go to the bathroom. So unless there is uh, uh, some workarounds that he had, you know, little shortcuts he could take yeah, where he didn't have to actually transcribe every single one, like maybe there was a way, but I think we're nitpicking here, but it was a, a, an amazing feat that they were able to do. Unfortunately, they were interrupted before they could celebrate their success. I think, well, one, first of all, they print out all of this into like right. a eight inch thick <laughs> stack <laughs> of paper. Yeah. Which is insane. And essentially that's it. Like that hard copy book that they printed mm -hmm. is the code that that's what the IBM computer is, not this machine in front of them. It's that, yeah. that book. That's the only difference between that computer and any other computer, which is yeah. insane. But yeah, his wife shows up. That's what I was getting at. She shows up. She's really mad for good reasons. <laughs> You're yeah. apparently not sick there, are you there, Gordon? <laughs> Joe, I guess, tries to help, and then he quickly takes the Ron Bios and leaves. Yeah, he just... <laughs> he can't do anything. <laughs> he's not going to, you know, stare down Mama Bear here. He's No, uh, no, 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 he, no. He, he's seeing the writing on the wall. He's going to make his exit and yes. take his yeah. code with him. <laughs> Mama Bear with a mole. That's not what you want to mess with, Joe. Okay. <laughs> you've, you've met your match, sir. <laughs> yeah. And his daughter's six, or, or her daughter is sick as well they mentioned so yeah. she's definitely not in a good mood so no 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 and she's probably been driving for a while too yeah and it's late and she has to go to work in the morning so i mean all these things are right. sort of really just <laughs> amplifying the situation <laughs> right but we get that moment where gordon says it's not enough referring to his current life so he is admitting that he wants more and donna says something that man is just it hits right to the heart she says well, it always has been enough for me. But then I guess like I that. never had the burden of believing that I was some misunderstood genius. I mean, that's, yep. that's got to hurt, man. The fact that yeah. she's basically saying, Gordon, you're not special, okay? Right. <laughs> you may think you are, but you're not. And she walks away, and we're left yep. with kind of like a broken machine. Uh, we're not even left with the Ron Bios packet because Joe already <laughs> right. took that away. So exactly. Gordon's got nothing left. He's got a speaking spell that apparently he's fixed and a broken. Well, maybe he could print another IBM copy, PC. right? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he has Pull a paper left. Yeah. <laughs> or if he has a computer left. Like, what are you printing or that ink. off? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is that a dot matrix it, printer? Yeah. Or um, what do they used to have? The Yeah, with the 
the side perforated. Oh yeah, yeah. A term for that. Let me just say that still exists at rental car companies. Like everybody oh, else geez. has moved yeah. on to laser disc or laser disc, laser printers. <laughs> Rental car laser companies disc. are still using that nonsense, and I'm like, they're also Why still are using laser discs. Yeah, laser discs too. Yeah. They're like, check <laughs> out this sales video. And they ha- sit down, <laughs> and pop in this laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> then we're back at Cardiff Electric. Bosworth's trying to leave the office because apparently pork chops are being made. I don't know if it was by him <laughs> or by his wife, but he's excited about these pork chops, yeah. man. And he gets a call from Dale at IBM. And he finds out that Joe's actually been, quote, missing for over a year. He, like, walked out of IBM and never came back. And they were about to actually file a missing persons with the police. I think they did. I think they actually did file a missing person. He says that they did call the police and they were, you know, they were, I think, almost ready to declare him dead. You know, like that something horrible happened and he's no longer alive, but he resurfaced. Yeah. Yeah. He did, and apparently, according to uh, to Dale, he's damaged goods. IBM has apparently found out what Joe and Gordon have been doing, but how? I know we're going to find out very soon, but I at first thought maybe it was Gordon's wife. I was going really to the to a bad place there. I was like, oh, did she call somebody so that Gordon won't pursue this any further? I, I, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm glad I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, does IBM have spies everywhere? Are they like working around (laughs) every corner? Texas Instruments. Big Blue. Yeah. (laughs) Big Blue's got Texas Instruments spies and they're everywhere, man. (laughs) So I'm glad I was incorrect. And there was an, and I'm also glad it wasn't just like a weird plot hole, like that they didn't answer. (laughs) Yeah. It actually became a significant, became a significant plot point. (laughs) Yes. Because, the next day, we get to meet Nathan Cardiff. So here's Nathan Cardiff. He owns a company you destroyed. I mean, Bosworth is just completely blunt about everything. No discretion, no subtlety with him. And he's like a total, even more of a Texan than, <laughs> than Bosworth. Yeah, yeah. He is, he's deep in the heart of Texas, whereas yeah. Bosworth is like more like city Texas. He's like exactly. Texas. Yeah. He has, exactly. He has the, the accent, but he's still like a, a business man from uh, a ur- more urban part of, of Texas. Yeah. What city are we in again? I think they tell us, but um, um, right now. I think it's just outside Dallas. Like, I don't think it's I think actually right. Dallas. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if they gave us a specific city, but it's, yeah, I think it's like a suburb or a smaller city outside of Dallas. Yeah. Cause Joe clearly lives in like a, a fancy high rise apartment building downtown somewhere. So I'm assuming that would be in, in Dallas and he commutes to his job. But his apartment has his cool car. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he probably doesn't live in that apartment anymore since he destroyed it. It's like the landlord's kicking him out. (laughs) (laughs) This scene shows us that Joe is like really like even keeled and Gordon is clearly freaking out. Yet another great contrast between the two. And we find out that IBM is sending their legal team to uh, get this situation sorted out about the reverse engineering of their PC. And this is where we find out what you thought would be a plot hole is actually right. significant. Joe actually told IBM what they were doing. And I'm like, that that's gutsy, Joe. I mean, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And this is when my idea about this all being part of a master plan kind of started to click for me. And I thought, oh, this, this is interesting. Yeah. And to, just to reinforce that concept, the next scene is in the parking lot. And Joe reveals that he saw the symphonic 
at Comdex a couple of years ago. So again, as you're telling me this, I'm like, yeah, this makes a whole lot of sense that he put this whole thing together to make this happen. And that's where he says to Gordon, you're a builder. I think that's the first like heartfelt thing he has said all episode. And yes, it definitely is coming from a selfish place, you know, keep him on the team, but he's not wrong. That's what Gordon is. He's a builder. And so being able to reinforce that, it kind of takes Gordon back home. And that, when he says that you're a builder, I drew some parallels between the various films and stories that have depicted the relationship between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at Apple in the early days in the 70s. Steve Wozniak was clearly the builder of the two, and Jobs obviously was more like Joe, you know, more the visionary, the right. guy that could sell it and understood it, but he didn't actually build anything. He wasn't yeah. getting his hands dirty, if you will. And I think that's intentional because I think we're yeah. meant to latch on to that concept. But again, because they mentioned Apple, I imagine Steve Jobs is going to be mentioned at some point or Wozniak because they exist in this world. It's not like this is a replacement for Steve Jobs. Right, and right. Steve it's Wozniak. still, yeah, exactly. I don't think they mentioned Microsoft anywhere, but maybe they will in future episodes because I, I didn't hear it in this episode. But clearly, that's, that's another big player that may come up with. With Gates and it's I, I like that I, I like that it's not just a fictional as we said earlier it's not just a fictionalized world with all fake computer companies but that no this is just a small player like in a big pond of real technology companies of the era yeah they mentioned Tandy so that's legit <laughs> yeah <laughs> back at Gordon's house he is making dinner and he has fixed the speaking spell and he tells Donna, I figured you needed a break. I, I really like this scene. It's such a great kind of moment of reconciliation. Yeah. Kind of redeems himself. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't feel fake. He programmed the speaking spell to say his kid's name. That, that gives him some cool dad points right there. Yes. I mean, way to use your <laughs> nerdledge to, to make yeah. your kids happy. That's so cool. They definitely thought it was cool. Yeah. They did. I thought it was cool. And I'm not even his kid. So. Yeah. And it's great that when the first word they spell is daddy. Great. Right. Good job. Yeah. I love that he he you know they they've been wanting him to fix it for a few days now. Not only did he fix it, he made it better. <laughs> he did. He improved, he improved it. on it. Yeah. Because Gordon, you're a builder. You're a builder. That's right. So he and Donna they try to make amends. He tells her that none of what he's doing matters without her. Then she says, "Build it. If you build it, he will come." No, she doesn't <laughs> say that, but she does say, "Build it." And I really feel like this is a moment similar to Rocky too. I'm going to throw in a Rocky reference here because I can, where Rocky is training to rematch against Apollo. Adrian's not having it because she's like, you know, you're retired. And at some point, she has a collapse. She's pregnant. They have the baby, but she's in sort of a coma. And she finally wakes up. And sorry, I'm spoiling some stuff. My bad. Um, (laughs) I've never seen it. No. (laughs) Rocky fights Apollo again. I'll just say that. But anyway... (laughs) She says, do something for me. And he goes, what? And he go, she goes, when? And it's the same kind of like support system that right. just as he needs her, I think that's what Gordon needs. He needs Donna and the kids to be a part of this. He admits that. And yeah. then she finishes off by saying, you want to partner with Joe McMillan? Then you partner with me and this family. The scene ends with her face as she's hugging him. 
but she looks both excited and scared because I think she knows that she's going to have this experience that they had together before kids with the symphonic, but she also knows the risks and off they go. I mean, they're now assuming that he doesn't get fired. <laughs> or, right. <laughs> even if he does well, get fired, I guess they're going to do this thing. Exactly. And I think she has come to her own realization that if she wants him back and wants him more involved with the kids and with the home life, then she needs him to be happy and fulfilled with his work life, with his creatively. And so that this is actually the only way to get him back because he clearly was not happy. As we, as we mentioned, he was drinking. He was, he was not present. He was constantly just in his own world. So this was sort of a conscious decision on her part as well to sort of realize that we're all going to lose him or we got to kind of bring him back into the family in a way that makes him happy again, hopefully, and not get fired. (laughs) Yeah. And apparently they don't get fired because at Cardiff Electric, the next day they work out a solution. The lawyer tells Bosworth that the only way out of the lawsuit is actually by hiring an engineer to actually build the computer. This idea was Joe's. So Boss is just like irate. He's like, this is, I can't fire you. And now we actually have to go off and do this thing. Even the way that Joe reacts when Nathan Cardiff goes off is priceless. He holds his own. He is just calm, cool, collected. He just has control of the situation. So watching him sort of play this out is so fantastic. And I believe in Joe, even though I see what kind of crap he's pulling. I believe in Joe. And I'm not ready to follow him off the cliff like the Pied Piper, but he's got me sold. Like, I think he can do anything. Like, he can take care of what he says he will. He says earlier in the episode, outside the movie theater, let me take care of Cardiff. Right. And he clearly does. So, And it's almost like he has, again, with this sort of pre-planned agenda, if you will, he almost knows how everyone's going to react. He's ready for it. He's not phased when the owner yells at him, you know, he because he's he was waiting. He knew that had to happen for the events to unfold the way he has sort of planned in his in this master plan of his. So it's all part of that plan. And it's yeah, it maybe hard to have to be yelled at. But he also realizes that he doesn't have that's it. It's just going to be words. He's still going to get what he wants. Yeah. And that's the key. And they need an engineer that doesn't work for Cardiff Electric at that point. So right. <laughs> that master plan is continuing to play itself out. We get back to the bar where Cam is found out <laughs> that she's been cheating at Centipede and that she gets into a bar fight, which gets her fired from her job. As she leaves, calling the owner a fascist, she meets up with Joe and Gordon outside. And now we're at the Mexican restaurant where some of the best dialogue of the <laughs> episode really takes place. <laughs> Cam says, You know I screwed him, right? Let's be adult about this. Cough talking down to me, don't you? Look, there are a thousand other engineers we can get, preferably one you haven't bedded down with. Who are you again? I'm the guy who figured out the boot code in four days. What have you done? You heard him. And it sounds so (laughs) juvenile and nerdy because I'm like, what? Boot code? But you know what? Again, having went to school with a lot of people like this that's kind of the response you would get that that's their sure <laughs> you know bragging you know that's their way of showing that's the pissing contest yes who's better 
Then Joe tells Cam that he was scouting her for, quote, this exact moment. And again, this is reinforcing your theory, man. So, man, I'm going to give you 100 bonus points for picking this up. <laughs> and he offers 20K for Cam yes. to come work over at Cardiff Electric. And immediately she goes, double it. <laughs> and Gordon's like, my wife makes 15 at TI. And she's like, sorry for her. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and, and I decided because I had an actual figure, I decided to plug these numbers into the inflation calculator. And that 40K in today dollars, which is 2022, even if you're listening at a later date, it's close to 120,000 today. So wow. she got herself, she doubled it too. So she went from 60 to 120 in today dollars just by throwing it out there. And I'm assuming he says yes or gets her the money because she comes along and we see them the next day back at Cardiff Electric. I will say one last thing about this scene, because at first I thought maybe that scene in the beginning was going to take place after the events in the boardroom with the owner and, and realizing they have to hire somebody. I thought, oh, maybe they showed us a little scene that was going to come later. But no, no, this, and again, that would have made more sense if it wasn't part of a plan. But if it was all part of a, this master stroke of his, where he knew what he's going to need eventually, that makes more sense that it happened. It predates his hiring at Cardiff Electric. So that makes me wonder, that first scene where they get sort of intimate, and yeah, yeah. Does he intentionally make her mad by saying this doesn't mean you get the job? Because he didn't have a job to give her. Right. He didn't have a Exactly. He didn't have anything to offer. He was unemployed at that moment. So I wonder if he intentionally was trying to seduce her, but not completely to make her mad, to make her remember him, to get right. her mad. And that's why he said that he was scouting her for this exact moment. Like the plan was working. That's a really good point, actually, because he almost sabotaged that liaison, if you will, by saying the worst thing he could say at the most inopportune time so that she would end that interaction. And therefore, he would definitely not offer her a job at that point because they left on bad terms. Right. And so because he didn't have a job to offer. So it's almost like he I think you, I think you could be onto something with him intentionally sabotaging that moment. Yeah. Maybe just creating more tension for right. that later conversation. Yep. Man, puppet master, man, pulling the strings. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, she gets the, I guess she gets the money. She's on a bus going to Cardiff. She actually changes into her quote business suit, which is a sweater. You know, she's not wearing the, <laughs> the t-shirt. I do like that. She keeps the camo pants on though. I thought that yes, was a nice little yes. look, the red sweater with the, with the camo pants. Good job on you, Cam. And she meets Joe and then goes to meet with the legal counsel. This is a little sketchy here. The lawyer oh, yeah. kind of prompts her to say yes or no, and I'm pretty sure that's not legal. <laughs> it's not, that. but I'm sure it happens all the time. You know, I'm sure yeah. all they have to do is provide an audio recording where she says no and they can hire her. So, yeah. As she's talking to the lawyer, there's a quick cut uh, with the voiceover and the question answering of Donna going, She's at her house and she's looking at the broken PC. I'm not really sure what she's thinking about here. I, I mean, mm. do you have thoughts there? I mean, the only thing I, I thought of is she's just curious, perhaps, about what... Because she's clearly 
as we've said, she's a, a, a technical person as well, and she worked with him making the symphonic however many years earlier that was. So maybe she still has a little of that itch as well to be a part of this new venture. She's kind of settled working at Texas in- Instruments. We don't know exactly what she does anymore, but it's she only makes 15000 a year, which is more than the... I have to say, there's one other monetary amount that they threw out, which was that Cam repairs VCRs for $3.25 an hour. And I thought that was interesting. (laughs) More that it reminded me of the fact that we had a whole industry of TV VCR repair shops. Like there were so many TVs and VCRs and so many that were constantly breaking that there were repair shops and people that specialized in fixing them. Nowadays, yeah. if your flat screen TV breaks, you're like, oh, let's go to Walmart and get another one. It's like, I know. It, it's that's so cheap so, now. That is, and, yeah. And exactly it's better. It's right. like you go up, you go, oh, and I can get a 4K now for, you know, $400. Oh, yeah. Just throw that other one in the landfill. <laughs> you know? That whole it's, industry just took a yeah. dump into we the took abyss the of time like, to repair yeah. things back then, even toasters and. Uh, everything mm-hmm. could get repaired back then, but now it's like, oh, if your toaster—it's so cheap now. It's disposable. It's worth, yeah. yeah, everything's disposable, and the, and that's probably why they make them cheaply, sell them cheaply. They break after mm-hmm. a year or two. <laughs> it's got to yeah. buy a new one. So, <laughs> so yeah, there was a whole industry where people took the time to learn and and repair appliances, and really, that's what these things were at the time: televisions and computers and VCRs. They were household appliances more right. than, than anything else. So anyway, I, I just thought that was a, another fun just trip down memory lane because it just we don't do that anymore. Even right. like a not that very many people have DVD or Blu-ray players, but if you did want to buy a Blu-ray player today, it's like forty dollars. So if it broke, yeah, you, you're not going to go find a repair shop. <laughs> <You're just> gonna, <laughs> not at all. Anyway, that's not even a dying business. That's a dead business now. That's a dead business. Yeah. <laughs> Although there are there are some uh, collectors of physical media, I I am one of them, but it's a very uh, specific niche audience these days. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I I just think that going back to um, Donna, yeah, yeah, I think she was curious about what he was doing, and just you know wanting to understand what her husband is up to, wanting to be a part of this new this new venture, this new path that he's heading down. That's kind of yeah. what I took from it. And then the episode sort of finishes out with a couple of quick scenes. The boardroom, mm-hmm. Boz is laying down the law to keep everyone <laughs> in line. So he's kind of like the school principal. Like, <laughs> you know, stay, yeah. stay in the lines, play by the rules. Cam wonders who her boss is, and both Joe and Gordon both answer up. <laughs> so yeah. we're not all in sync at this point. We're kind of just right. the ragtag <laughs> folks are coming together. And then Bosworth speaks to Joe privately. He says, whatever this is, son, I'm on the hook for it. Do you understand? And Joe says, yes. And then we get another great angle showing Bosworth being shorter than Joe. Now, again, knowing now that Lee Pace is like eight feet tall, (laughs) that he towers over everybody. (laughs) Right. In this episode, he was never standing up next to Bos until this moment. And so to see Bosworth trying to talk down to him metaphorically and to see that angle from the opposite vantage point of him being like towering over Bosworth. Again, I thought that was such a great decision to be able to show 
even if he's being talked down to, he's really still in charge because he's right. holding all the cards. He's the exactly. one, the mind behind all this, the visionary. Bosworth is just a pawn at this point, or maybe even a bishop. You kind of feel bad for him too when he says, yeah. "I've been here I think, 22 years, and yeah, like you know, this is my whole life, and you just came in here and basically you pulled the wool over my eyes and tricked me." And he he knows that he's not dumb. He understands what Joe's doing to a certain extent. He may not know the yeah. full ramifications, but he he knows that he's been played. And I think that that's an important aspect of this relationship going forward yeah and bosworth is going to try to get him like he has said you know on certain terms that he's out to get him so we have that to look forward to (laughs) what's that gonna gonna play out with and then the final shot was so great the appearance of the three lawyers at first from ibm yeah from ibm and then this like clown car of litigation opens up and there's like 53 lawyers that just keep rolling and like they never stop. Yeah. It's like the, the epitome of corporate excess right there. You know, like do they really need that many lawyers and assistants? And yeah, it's just absurd, but not unrealistic. Right. That's what we call intimidation is what that is. An intimidation tactic. And um, the the trio of Cam and Joe Joe, and Gordon are all sitting there, it's an interesting shot because it's a stacked side shot. I don't know what if that's a if there's a technical name for it, but you've got Cameron or Gordon at the far end, and then you've got Cameron in the middle, and then you've got Joe as a close up, and it's almost like they're superheroes getting ready to go to battle or something. But it's a really cool way to end the actual episode of like it's these three guys against the world. I think that's kind of the message that the episode is leaving us with, that they're going to be the pioneers of something. They're going to be doing something pretty incredible, and they're going to be at odds with everybody else around them, not necessarily Donna and her family. But of course, I'm I'm pretty sure there's going to be some tension there because even though she's on board, there's probably going to be some some hard times. You know, Gordon's going to have to work late. And (laughs) and so at the very least, those will be the issues. Well, and it's it's true, as you said, it's like the three of them against what they often refer to IBM as at the time as like the, the evil empire, the big corporate, you know, they were the epitome of mm-hmm. this giant mega corporation that was for business. So if you didn't like big business, then IBM was everything you hated. I mean, it's in their name, International Business Machines. That's what IBM stands for. So this is clearly, these are three small time people, or so we think, going up against David and Goliath, basically, going up yep. up against a, a huge empire. Yeah. Without Darth Vader. Right, right. <laughs> Here's a little bit of little trivia for you, Adam. Okay. So the letters IBM, do me a favor and go back one letter for each one. What's the letter before I? So H... And then A, and then L, how nine thousand two thousand one. That's right. Yeah, little nugget there for Which you. Which came first, how <laughs> or IBM? <laughs> one is definitely smarter than the other. I'll let you decide yeah. what that's going to be. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like I I remember now hearing or reading about that, but I I didn't remember it. It was lost in my memory banks. Yeah. When I watched that's, 2001 that's cool. with my dad, yeah. I started asking about what's what's the deal with Hal. 
And he said, well, he was a computer built back in the 1970s, but nobody knew about it because he changed his name. If you go backwards or go forward with his letters, what do you spell? IBM. Oh my gosh, IBM was how? That was the 15-year-old me being yeah. gullible for my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Original Series, a little bit longer than uh, we expected, but you know, it's a pilot episode, and we got a lot to talk about. And we hope that you enjoyed listening to the conversation. And uh, if you find anything interesting from this episode going along with us, feel free to talk to us online at our uh, addresses that are mentioned in the show notes. Adam, what is coming up? Next up, episode two, entitled FUD. FUD. FUD, F-U-D, all caps, fear, I think the- uncertainty, and doubt, perhaps. Death, death, fear, <laughs> uncertainty, and death. Yes, death, yeah. Death, death. Elmer, so I think the full title was Elmer, FUD. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, that's it. <laughs> that's an all-animated episode. <laughs> <laughs> I thought from, I saw a computer <laughs> from Warner Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up. Yep. This is a special episode of Halt and Catch Fire with animated yeah. characters <laughs> that resemble <laughs> Warner Brothers characters. <laughs> but all the voices of your of the cast return. <laughs> Mel Blanc voices the, the yeah. cast of Halt and Catch Fire, Joe McMillan and everybody else. Looking forward to that one. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I, I'm totally, I, I'm, you know, after just one episode, I know it's not called the pilot, but it did its job for me and it, it hooked me. I am, I'm in, I feel like I, I know the characters. I'm interested in the premise. It, it's all there. And that's what a good first episode or good pilot episode does. It can, it can get you hooked within that one hour or less time frame. Absolutely. And it did for me as well. I'm excited to do my rewatch with you. Thank you guys for tuning in and joining our conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here. <laughs>